Letter number seven of Letters from Hell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Letters from Hell by Valdemar Adolf Thisted. Letter number seven. Light increases slowly, but we never reach further than a kind of luminous twilight, the reflection of paradise. Time passes amid suffering, torture, and regret. Do not imagine that because I can write what perchance interests you. It follows that it interests me, or that I can fill up my time. That, too, is but imaginary. Time seems to pass, but alleviation there is none. Upon earth the worst misery yields to the consolation that, sooner or later, it must come to an end. But here, awful fact, Time itself is endless. Memories, memories, facts long since forgotten. Here they are, as though they had happened but yesterday. I try to escape them, and once more recollections of Aunt Betty are something of an entity. In thinking of her, and her invariable kindness to me throughout the years of my childhood, I long for tears of gratitude. But the eye is dry as a parched desert. How good she was to me, but kindest of all to my father, and how loving to all whom she could serve. The humblest was not beneath her, if she could lend him a helping hand. How often would she sit up for my mother, sending the tired maid to bed. How often would she spend an evening with the servant girls, showing them how to make their own clothes, and teaching them the art of laying by something out of their wages. She would read to them, and amuse them, to keep them steady, and was actually going to teach the coachman his letters. But there my father interfered, introducing him to a night school instead. Her health was anything but strong, yet she never considered herself when the burdens of others could be lightened. If ever anything made her angry, it was the request to take care of herself. I she would say, as if the most monstrous demand had been preferred. I? What do you mean? She had put self so far away that the idea of caring for it appeared to her almost ludicrous. Love gave her a wondrous power of self-command. When my mother had hurt her feelings, no rare occurrence, I fear, and she had brushed away the tears. She never failed doing a special turn of sisterly service with a face of angelic devotion, anxious to appear all the more light-hearted in my father's presence, if perchance he had noticed it, and looked distressed. Of course her own loving and hopeful disposition assisted her in ever making the best of things, but more than this, it was the divine spirit moving in her. Love had become second nature to her, and love always helped her in doing the right thing, however strangely she might set about it. Her education had been neglected, even as regards religious knowledge. If you had asked her the simplest questions about faith and hope and charity, she would probably have startled you with ignorant answers. But she had these things, and they made her a child of heaven. The room she had chosen for herself was simple, but her own neatness pervaded it. Yet one could not say there was any order in her room. Every available space was littered with objects, great and small, in wonderful variety, offering to the observant mind a key to my aunt's inmost nature, 
were amid valuables of every description, there were articles only fit for the dustbin, apparently. But my aunt knew why she valued them. They were a sort of landmarks, in her estimation, by which her life's history could be traced. Even at an early age, I had a vague notion of the sanctity of these relics, and must own I handled them reverently. They would set my fancy going, and I would invent stories where Auntie's authentic knowledge appeared loth to lift the veil. Aunt Betty, as a rule, dressed more than simply, despising all pretense at fashion in her daily life. Not that she could and she would, as she used to say. And she valued a handsome present now and then, not for the sake of the object itself, but as a mark for people's regard for her. She liked to be thus honored by those for whom she spent herself in service. Both my father and my mother lost no opportunity of presenting her with costly gifts, articles of dress especially, if my mother was the giver. Aunt Betty would accept these things with almost childish satisfaction, shutting them up forthwith in her spacious wardrobe. And thus it came about that she owed quite an array of millinery, shawls, mantles, bonnets, laces, furs, and what not, without ever wearing them. That they grew old-fashioned did not trouble her in the least, but that the moth should not eat them was her conscious care. For this reason, she would hold regular exhibitions, when bed, table, and chairs were loaded with her treasures by way of giving them an airing, she walking about with a quiet expression of ownership, her gentle hand smoothing out or dusting her finery. But her eyes seemed far away, or, if a gay mood supervened, she would even place a feathered bonnet on her dear old head looking at herself in the glass with a peculiar smile, as though she was comparing the once maiden Betty, whose youth and beauty brought homage to her feet, with the aging spinster whom the world scarcely knew now, whose life had run in the narrow channel of sacrifice. I am an old goose, she would say, putting up her gear with her lavender bags. But, auntie, besides these things, owned a small library of choice works, beautifully bound. She would dust them as lovingly as those unused garments, but she never read them, having neither time nor quiet, she said. Some day, when I am old and no longer needed, I will read them all, she would add. Among her many peculiarities, her habit of reading aloud deserves notice. Understanding, in her case, presupposed hearing which proves that the art of reading with her never reached beyond the rudimentary stage. Poor Aunt Betty, keeping your books for a time when you are no longer needed. But that time found you singing psalms with the angels. In the dusk of the evening I would often seek her room. I would find her sitting in silence and lost in thought. But she was never annoyed at my disturbing her. She loved me too much for that. And then she would begin telling me stories— quite a special gift with her. I doubt not, but that she mostly made up her stories as she told them. What if they were no great literary productions? They breathed a poetry of their own, a warmth of loving kindness that fascinated my childish heart. It was Aunt Betty who first instructed me in religion, 
If her teaching was not exactly dogmatic, it was most truly practical. The impressions it left, so deep, so sweet, so tender, how could they ever fade away? One evening we were sitting by her window. The sky was clear and the stars were shining with unusual brightness. The wondrous sight impressed my childish mind. No doubt I had noticed them before, but looking back to that hour, it seems as though on that evening I first beheld the sparkling lights of heaven. I wanted to know what the stars were and what was behind them. Then Aunt Betty spoke to me of the dwelling place of our Heavenly Father and its many mansions of indescribable beauty. I would go there some day on leaving earth if I were a good and holy child. The prospect pleased me, but curiosity was not satisfied. I wanted to know more. I wanted a direct answer to my question. Now, many an instructor of youth might have been puzzled, but Aunt Betty's imagination was far too fertile to be so easily at fault. She continued, therefore, Behind the stars, my child, there is a grand, beautiful hall of glory, such as I has not seen. And there God sits upon his throne, with the only begotten Son at his right hand. Right in the middle of the hall there is a Christmas tree, higher than the highest mountain on earth, full of lights and most beautiful presents. And who do you think are gathered beneath that tree? Why, all the good children who, having lived holy lives, have come to be children of God, and blessed angels. There they are, always happy, always good. They rejoice at the tree which is prepared for them, and praise God with new songs, their voices ringing sweetly through the spaces of heaven. The presents on the tree are all theirs. I mean, they are always being given to them. Yet the tree is never empty. I thought this delightful. But what are the stars? I said, reverting to my question. The stars, child? Well, I will tell you, said Auntie. Right round that hall, there are innumerable little peepholes through which the light of the Christmas tree shines upon earth. We call them stars. Whenever the little angel children have done singing, they go and look through these peepholes, anxious to know whether boys and girls on earth are trying to be good and likely to join them some day. For they consider them their little brothers and sisters and wish them to become as happy as they are. Whenever you see the stars, therefore, you must remember that through each one of them the eye of some angel looks down upon you. That is why the stars twinkle, just as these big eyes of yours twinkle as you look at me. Now you see that you must always try to be good and obedient, else some angel's eyes would fill with tears, and you would not like them to be sad while watching you. This account so moved me that tears rose to my own eyes, and I lay sobbing in Aunt Betty's lap. It was the desire of knowing more which first tendered to quiet me. But Auntie, I said, tell me what happens to all the bad children. This question very nearly puzzled her. She was too tender-hearted to speak to me of hell and its terrors. So she said, the bad children, well... I think they are put into some dark corner, far, far away from God and his dear son. Again, I was not satisfied. There must be more. Well, she continued, listen, the bad children are shut up in an ugly room where the fire has gone out and where it is so cold and miserable that they chatter with their teeth. It is dark, too, 
for the light has been taken away, and they tremble with fear. They cry and knock at the door as hard as they can, but no one pays any attention. I thought that dreadful. I am frightened, Auntie, I whispered, pressing quite close to her. Look up at the stars, my child, she said. Then you won't be frightened, and she stroked my hair lovingly. Fear left me. The stars did twinkle, as though they said, Be good, little child, and I felt quite ready to be good. I should like to hear them sing, I went on, presently. Do you know, Auntie, how angels sing? I will try and show you, she responded, falling in at once with my desire. And with her sweet voice, she sang to me one of her favorite hymns. How beautiful it sounded in the evening twilight. There was nothing grand about her voice, but something so childlike in its gentle tones that the song sank into my heart as I kept watching the stars, and they seemed to look down upon me as kind as Auntie herself, twinkling again and again. Be good. Another moment, my hearing was charmed, following my gaze. Earth was not, but only heaven, and Auntie's hymn was the new song of angels. I listened with a rapt devotion that swelled my childish soul, folding my hands unconsciously as Aunt Betty had taught me, and I tried to twinkle back at the stars with my own eyes to let them see that with my ears, with my heart, I was listening to their angels. When the singing ceased and silence had carried me back to the present, I felt quite poor and forsaken. But all that night, in dreams, I saw the heavenly tree and heard the songs of glory. Many an evening we spent like that, Aunt Betty singing, and I watching the stars, and long before I had learned her hymns, and we sang them together. I believe it was with Auntie as with myself, singing our hymns to the praise of God, we both felt carried away from earth, both longing for that which is beyond the stars. One evening Aunt Betty told me the story of the rich man and poor Lazarus. It greatly affected me. I was very glad for the poor beggar to have been carried right into Abraham's bosom, where he was so happy, but the rich man longing in the torment of hell for a little drop of water moved my deepest pity. I grieved for him, shedding an agony of tears. Poor rich man, how hard it was to punish him, so dreadfully. Auntie was quite unhappy at my distress. No doubt she meant to impress me, but not in this way, and she tried her utmost to calm my feelings. Don't take it to heart so much, child, she said. I do not think you need. And it was very unkind of Father Abraham to deny him a porch drop of water. God, I dare say, did not like that at all. Indeed, if I know him all right, I should not be surprised if Father Abraham had a scolding for it. For if a drop of water could comfort the rich man in his torment, I don't believe God would have refused it. And he, who freely gave his precious blood, would not be so unkind about mere water. And moreover, didn't you hear that the rich man, even in hell, remembered his brethren? That, I'm quite certain, pleased God very much indeed. Love to the brethren cannot but move the heart of God, even if it comes right from the midst of hell. Thus she comforted me. She would not have hesitated to say a great deal more than this to still my poor Aunt Betty. I said she could not dogmatize. The one creed she was sure of was God's wonderful love, and judging that love by her own loving heart, she believed it fully capable of flooding all creation with its own indwelling goodness. 
but why do I call her poor? Is it I who am poor, all the poorer for memories? I will not call them painful memories, though I ache with them. Do you understand me? Even in hell, something precious is bound up with such memories, though, on the other hand, it cannot but add to grief, just as a certain sweetness in some viands brings out the fact that they are sour. I speak of childhood's memories, those of later years, save those connected with Lily, are all sorrow, all despair. I would gladly forget them, but it is part of my punishment that I cannot. Thus, I distinctly remember the religious instruction which was to prepare me for confirmation. I was deeply moved, and hardly know how such impression should pass so quickly, so entirely, as though they had not been. The clergyman in question was as godly as venerable. The animal nature was strong in even then, but he knew how to keep it under. It needed but a look of his eye, and I felt a prisoner to the divine, listening anxiously to his teaching. He had a rare gift of touching the heart and drawing it out. He spoke to us on the words, Be ye reconciled to God. How could I ever forget those words? Alas, I did forget them, but now they pierce the soul. They keep ringing in the brain. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. And when once their memory is upon me, nothing will drive it out, till some other recollection, some other pain, takes their place. I remember all he said on that occasion. I remember it now from beginning to end. But I could not repeat it, there being a great gulf between now and the time of those words nor can the recollection of them do me any good. They are barren of comfort, of instruction, barren entirely of peace. It is now only my mind which takes them in now. The heart is closed. It is though the words were hollow, or perhaps I am hollow and empty, and there is nothing left that can fill me. I do remember that he spoke to us of God's own word, whereby salvation was offered to men, but all that is outside of me only. I am like the rich man thirsting for a drop of water, but there is no one to give it. I make painful efforts to drink, then, as it were, any of the words I think of. They are there. I once knew them by heart, but I cannot lay holds of them. They seem quite close at times, but when I would take them to myself, they are gone. This terribly hopeless effort is perhaps the worst of hell's torments. You may understand from this how it is possible with me to speak of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, naming the Savior, the crucified one, speaking of repentance and faith, without the faintest share in their blessing, nay, mentioning them with my lips merely, despair filling the heart. Everything is vain and empty in hell. Those words are but soulless sounds to me. I know them outwardly. I can speak of them. But their meaning is nothing to me. I know that there is a Savior, and that he is the Son of God, but him I know not. It is empty knowledge. His very name, even, is gone. I hate myself, and say I have deserved it all, but it is fruitless repentance, repentance without cleansing tears. And as for faith, of course I believe, much believe, but that too is empty not faith which clings to that which it believes. Do not the devils believe? They must, and tremble. Be reconciled to God. What power those words had to move me, 
i felt in that hour as though it must be man's one and only object on earth to seek reconciliation with god and having found it to go to him through the portal of death i remembered the stars and their loving message be good and i felt ready to turn my back upon the world once for all my first communion was as an earnest that i had set my feet upon the path to heaven but i quickly turned aside at the very church door the world lay waiting with its pleasant road to hell be reconciled to god the words keep sounding about me not as an echo from heaven but rather as a curse of hell be reconciled reconciled to god why must i hear it when there is no more reconciliation when the door of mercy is closed oh terrible retribution if at times i know not what to do with myself i show myself in the row for of course that too is here hyde park champ elisai prater unter den linden corso prado all in one and upon my word i do not think there is much difference between these fashionable resorts upon earth and their semblance here i mean so far as what the world pleases to call style is concerned we could scarcely outdo the world in that respect but we have far more variety for with you but one fashion can prevail at a time whereas here all fashions flourish all the nonsense of centuries combined just think of that all the inventions of la mode brought together say a thousand years could there be a more absurd picture taking the fashion of dress for instance whatever gloom or wretchedness be upon me i assure you i laugh right out at the sight folly convicted out of its own mouth as it were to stop for a moment and imagine the effect women covered to the neck with flounces and furbelows on the one hand or half naked on the other puffed out to deformity here tight as pump handles there bonnets like coal scuttles here bonnets like cheese plates there but who could name all their nonsense of farthingales and stomachers ruffles and laces prunolines and high art styles fancy costumes and divided skirts not to mention chignones like very towers of babel and simpleton fringes and what not imagine them i say the fools of ten years only brought together and try to think of the fools of ten centuries and then to believe any one fashion beautiful any one of them dictated by the good taste to which they all pretend in the world somehow they pass for beautiful perhaps because only one at a time can rule but since every fashion which has had its day straightway goes to hell and since there is no past here but a continuous present they all flourish together and a nice medley it is one feels ashamed of humanity at the absurd sight and what is more fashionable people here are thoroughly ashamed of themselves though they try hard to appear very proud of their clothes it is a show of vanity and we are horribly conscious of it i say we since i am sure i am no better than the rest we know that sorry fools we are but nevertheless we are very anxious to dress ourselves choosing the fashion we followed in the world and the worst is our clothes do not even clothe us as i told you already we all see through each other's attire 
no matter how stylish it is. True, that painful sense of nakedness is common to all here. Still, to be naked is one thing, and to go about naked, pretending at the same time to be fashionably dressed, is another. And it is very hard to be laughed at, knowing all the while how heartily one deserves it. Would all the votaries of fashion, men and women on earth, could view, were it for a moment only, its true appearance is seen in hell, and they would never desire to be fashionable again. It is strange, no, not strange, but sadly true, that most people believe vanity and the love of dress no great sin, but at worst, only one of those amiable foibles to which one may plead guilty quite innocently. Love of dress in itself perhaps need not become a sin, I say perhaps, but look at it as you please. There is that connected with it which cannot but tend to the soul's ruin. Its aim and the aims of the spirit lie widely apart. It takes the place of better things, and vanity, clinging to you as a cloud, will hide the true objects of life. Men or women ruled by vanity fritter away their time, and when they die, not only good works do not follow them, but opportunities wasted stand round their buyer. Who has the face now to say that vanity, that love of dress, is harmless? I look upon my own life. How plainly I see it all now. How gladly would I improve opportunities, could they but return. I am inclined to conclude this letter with a little story I once heard somewhere in Italy, feeling loth at the same time to do so. For these are things about which one should not speak, jestingly, least of all in hell. However, the thing is not without its lesson, which may be useful to you. Nor is it fear that would prevent me, but rather an instinctive dread, a kind of repugnance, to appear making light of a solemn variety. It is a sort of burlesque myth, but containing that which should not be laughed at. Here it is. God from all eternity has purposed in his counsel to make men, and the devil from the beginning knew the mind of God. God carried out his eternal purpose. He made man, and it was easy for him to make him good. He simply created him in his own image. But the devil made desperate efforts to discover how he might mar this image of God. I have got it, said Lucifer to his grandmother, who sat knitting in a dark corner of hell. She was always knitting toils and looping snares to catch the unwary, though, being a person of property, she had no need to work so hard. I have got it, repeated Lucifer. I will put evil desire into man's heart, so that he shall love the forbidden and delight in disobedience. I will make a wrongdoer of him. All right, my boy. All right, said the grand dame. But that won't do it. Evil desire may be conquered, and the Lord God is the one to do it. The deuce, cried Lucifer. You may be right through. I'll think of something else. And down he went to the nethermost where he had his private study. There he spent a thousand years in deepest meditation, staring into the future with burning eyes. I've got it, he cried again, rushing up in a whirlwind. I shall fill the heart of man with self-love and self-will. I shall infature him so entirely that he will ever think of himself first. I shall make a vainglorious wretch of him. 
more or less, as the case may be. All right, my boy, all. But here she dropped a stitch. Catch up a firebrand, that'll do. I see, yes, my boy, all right. But that won't do it. Self-love and self-will may be rooted out, and the Lord God is the one to do it. Confound it, roared Lucifer, that these silly creatures should be so hard to ruin. They are scarcely worth the trouble, but I shall get them. Pazenza. I mean, to get them. And away he went to consider the matter once more in his study. A thousand years again had passed. He knew it not. And returning from his cognation, the grand dame still sat knitting on the spot where he had left her. She was so old that a thousand years did not add so much as a wrinkle to her ugly skin. She seemed more intense than ever upon her work. Now I've got it, cried Satan exultantly. I myself will take up my abode in man's heart and will utterly pervert him. He shall take falsehood, truth, vice, virtue, shame for honor. I'll make a fool of him, a fool of perversity. My boy, said the grandmother, gloating over her meshes, that won't do it, my boy. What has been perverted can be converted, and the Lord God is the one to do it. I shall give it up growled the devil, despondingly. It quite spoils my digestion. However, I will make one more effort. Another thousand years rolled on without record or almanac, and no one could tell what had become of them. Once more, Lucifer returned to his aged relative. He really did look worn and in need of a tonic. The devil's grandmother, strange to say, had done knitting. Nets and snares, an untold quantity, being ready for ages to come. She sat twiddling her thumbs and longing for her hopeful progeny. Lovable or hateful, he was her only one. Sure, I've got it now, exclaimed Lucifer, entering her presence. Vanity shall be man's second nature, vanity and love of dress. I will make an ape of him, and as an ape he shall delight in himself become a laughing-stock to his neighbor. "'That's it,' cried the grand dame, delighted, her ugly cat's eyes turning greener and greener. Your former plans were all very useful in their way, but they lacked one thing. They were not nearly simple-seeming enough really to beguile them. For however evil of desire, however self-willed and perverse man might become, he would always— have a feeling left that something was wrong. There is such a thing as conscience, remember, putting most men on their guard as regards great wickedness. Nor is there any saying what the Lord God in his infinite love for human souls may not devise towards keeping them straight. Vanity, however, is quite another thing, and love of dress, how harmless. A most precious invention of yours, my boy. Vanity, I declare, will become great upon earth. It looks so innocent. No one will suspect it. Poor things, why should they not assume themselves with their looking-glasses and their faddles? What more excusable than to spend the time in adorning oneself, in trying to look pretty and appear amiable in society? Yes, men will all yield to vanity, for they will not suspect it. Vanity shall be the door through which all other wickedness, evil desire, self-love, 
and perversity will find a ready entrance. Vanity, I say, seemingly harmless, will take them to hell. True, the Lord God still is able to do what he pleases. We must not forget that. But I am not an old woman for nothing, and have known a few things in my time. I cannot see for the life of me how God should care to stop any fool who, with the happiest conscience imaginable and delighting in his well-dressed appearance, goes trotting complacently to hell. The old she-find had become quite excited. She shook herself, and her skin, wrinkled and loose with age, hung about her as the skin of a snake. I am proud of you, my boy, and will help you, she continued. It's about the time that I should cast my skin, as it is just the thing you want. I will make it appear very lovely, as, after all, is very natural, since it is a part of my very own nature. It shall be varied and many-colored, and every fool shall delight in it. It will remain with you to make them accept it, but that will be easy, with their apish predilection for anything new, and startling. You'll see the consequences, Diabolino. They'll worship a new goddess, fashion by name. They'll believe her the most harmless of idols, and they'll never suspect. Ha <laughs> ha. That it is nothing more or less than my cast-off skin. Fashion will be the prop of vanity, and men will fritter away their life in hollow pursuit. The ape in men will have the upper hand, and the novelty of fashion will be endless. But now give me a hand and I will forthwith cast my skin. I am quite stiff for want of exercise. Lucifer was delighted. Perbacho, he cried. It's a great idea. And, catching up the old grandmother, he danced about with her wildly to the wondermost of hell, and the devil's grandame was beside herself with laughter, bursting almost with merriment. You'll worship my skin. Yeah, Lino, she cried. The worship my skin. End of letter seven. Read by Elijah Fisher. Thank you for listening. And if you like this, please subscribe and consider liking my Facebook page and joining my group, Jesus Answers Prayer. May God bless your day. Hola, somos Mark y Pearl Lambert, y somos los ministros de Jesús Responde las Oraciones. Si le gusta este ministerio, por favor ayúdenos a apoyarlo. El enlace para donar se encuentra en la descripción a continuación. Gracias y Dios te bendiga.